It's great to see you guys, and uh, I got to tell you before I get started, um, and Eric doesn't know this, when he texted me and asked me if I wanted to, to preach this Sunday, um, you know, I, I, I said I would love to, and uh, he didn't tell me what the passage was, and so I asked him what passage it was, and I was secretly hoping that it was this passage, because God has been speaking to me about this text for at least two months, and so I was praying for it, and then as soon as he sent me the text message, I was like, all right, so uh, needless to say, I am very excited to bring the word to you here today, and uh, I am not going to do this text justice, because there is too much majesty here, so um, I'm going to open us up in prayer here. Father, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for the goodness of your presence, I thank you for the ways that you've spoken here today, um, and I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I can bring the word with clarity and with boldness, and Spirit, I know how much you like to make Jesus look good, so I pray that you would do your thing right now, and I pray that you would, uh, you would fill the people here with a, a vision of Christ. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, so how many people here have been watching the, the FIFA World Cup? All right, so a few of you. So for those of you who don't know what the FIFA World Cup is, uh, it's a pretty big deal in soccer. It's when all of the countries with the best soccer teams get together and they compete to see who has the best soccer team in the world. It's the biggest event in soccer, okay? So if you're missing it on the news, you probably don't watch TV. Now, uh, uh, already, we're, we're only halfway through the, the tournament, but there's already been some really cool upsets. One of the ones that started off right away was the match between Mexico and Germany. Yeah, some of you are excited about that. Uh, Germany was the favorite. And they, they tend to usually be because they've always been good at soccer. But this time, Mexico beat them 1-0, and there was a huge celebration. Almost as exciting as the tournament is the celebration of the Mexican fans. Yeah. So it, it, one cool thing is, you know, we've got, there, even though it's on the other side of the world, hundreds of Mexican fans have flown out to Moscow, the capital city of Russia, for the games. And uh, not only have they gone all that way to cheer on their, cheer on their team, they have turned Moscow into a Mexican fiesta. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you, you, you can see them. They're, they're decked out in the, the, the red, white, and green of the Mexican flag with a Mexican flag tied around, tied around the necks as a cape oftentimes. And uh, some of them have this, this bus that's decorated in Mexican art, and they're going through the streets of Moscow playing salsa music and inviting fans from other countries to dance with them. Yeah, you've got, we've, we've got videos and photos of, of Mexican fans bringing tequila shots to Russian fans. Uh, and one, of the, one really awesome thing that some of them have been doing is they've been bringing these sombreros and giving them to disabled Russian fans and taking photos with them. So um, it, it's this really awesome thing that's happening um, that even though they're on the other part of the world and they're in a culture that's entirely different than their own, They've decided to own their nationality. And they have, they, in a context that is completely different from where they're from, they've decided to take the cues from where they're from and not from where they're at. Now, 
in the text that we're going to be talking about today, Paul gives the same advice to the church of Philippi. He tells them to take their cues from where they're from, not from where they find themselves. So go ahead and and stand up with me. We're going to read the word together. Open up your Bibles. The passage is Philippians 3, chapter 3. Philippians, if, you, if, you, if you're not sure, is right after the book of Ephesians. The verse is 17. It should be page 981 in the Pew Bibles. And by the way, if, if you're here today and you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you. We want you to, to read the Word and know the Word because through the Word we know God. So um, I'll start with verse 17 and we're going to go to 4.1. Brother, brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, what we're going to find here in this text is that if you are a believer here today, the earth is not your home. You are not from here. And because of that, oh, go ahead, you can sit down did that last time. <laughs> um, anyway, the earth is not your home, and so because of that, you, ha- you have to live your life differently than the rest of the world. And that can sometimes cause some significant tension. And we're not talking about just a cultural tension or a spiritual tension. It causes a political tension. Now, today, we're going to be talking about religion and politics, Okay? And some of you, those are two things you don't do. And it's a policy of yours. That's fine. But we're in church today, so we're going to talk about religion. And today, specifically, we're going to talk about politics. Now, I'm, don't worry. I'm not going to tell you that uh, you voted for the wrong person for president, although you might have. And I'm not going to tell you that you support the wrong political party, although you might. But what I will tell you, and what I might challenge you, is that with your life, you might be supporting the wrong kingdom. Now, something to remember as we approach this text is that uh, Paul is writing to the church that is in the city of Philippi. Philippi is within the region of Macedonia, which is part of the Roman Empire. And uh, Paul is writing from his prison cell in Rome. So this is a letter that he's writing from prison to people that he loves. One thing that you'll see in this passage and throughout the book of Philippians, that Paul has a deep affection for the Philippian people. And he knows that the church there is under a lot of pressure from from recent persecution and from false teachers that are trying to draw the the church away from following Christ. So it's with this pressure in mind that we're going to zero in on the first verse, verse 17. In that verse... It says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, in this verse, there is three commands. 
the, the first command that all of the other commands are based on is Paul wants the, the Philippians to imitate him. He wants them to copy the way that he lives his life and the example he sets. Now, this isn't the first time he's given this command to people. Later on in the book of Philippians, he tells the Philippians that um, whatever they see him do, whatever they, they've heard him say, they should put it in practice in their own lives. And then in the book of Corinthians, he tells the Corinthians that he, they should imitate him as he imitates Christ. Now, if, if you're here and you have any shred of humility, you probably are thinking to yourself, Paul, uh, that's a pretty cocky statement. I mean, you know yourself that nobody's perfect, and you've been preaching that we should only be following Christ. I mean, people don't walk around wearing WWPD bracelets. What would Paul do? They walk around wearing what would Jesus do? And, uh, and, and so, Paul, what makes you think that you're so special that we should follow what you do? And that's a very fair question. And trust me, Paul gets it. Um, in fact, later, earlier on in the book, Paul specifically says that he isn't perfect. He says that in his pr- pursuit of knowing Christ completely, he has not yet attained it. He has not a, yet obtained perfection. But what he does want you to imitate is the aim and focus of his life and attitude. And he specifically states that in, verse, in, in verse, uh, verses 12 of the cha- same chapter. It says, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind... And straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of, Christ, of God in Christ Jesus. And so, yeah, he doesn't think he's perfect. But what he does know is that even though Christ is perfect, and he's the example that we're primarily supposed to follow, Christ doesn't walk around with us here right now. He knows that sometimes we actually need to see people to know how to follow Christ. And you see what happened after Christ rose from the dead, he ascended back into heaven, and now he reigns eternally in heaven. So he's not with us, and, and one thing too is Christ is perfect. And because he's perfect, that means we have a lot of things that we can use him as an example for. However, Christ doesn't give us an example of what to do with our feelings of guilt. He doesn't give us an example of how to deal with our our personal sin and failures because he was perfect. He never did those things. What Paul does for us is he gives us an example of how to follow Christ while dealing with imperfection. He knows that sometimes we need imperfect heroes to follow our perfect hero. And we know we, we have an example in Paul in a number of places in Scripture. So we do know some, some ways that we can follow him, but even Paul, he's not close enough to us in time and proximity to be a perfect imitation for us to follow. That's why he gives the second command in the passage, which is to keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. You see, Paul's not a good enough example because he's not right there with us. We need people 
who follow our heroes better than we can in order to follow Christ better. Now, uh, we have some really great Christians to, to imitate throughout church history. I mean, you can't look at the life of Martin Luther, Billy Graham, C.S. Lewis, Elizabeth Elliot, John Piper, or Tony Evans without saying, that's a faith I want to have. But within that, these people are either dead or they're too far away to even know your name. You need people to imitate who are right in front of your face every week who can lead you and who you see them living their daily lives. And I got to tell you here, men, if you don't know, our Pastor Eric, Pastor Jeremy, the elders of our church that were just standing up here, they are godly men who love God with intensity. Yeah, yeah. And women who are young in the faith, there are some stellar ladies in this church who eyes are focused on Christ and have served him faithfully for years. And it's not just our leadership here at this church. God has gifted this church with men and women who are worth imitating because of the different ways they look like Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. No one in this church is perfect by a long shot. And everyone in this church especially myself, is going to let you down at some point. But the great news is, the work that God is doing in this church is real. And Paul understands that sometimes one of the best ways that we can see the, the good acts of Christ and hear the wonder of his word and experience the joy-filled life that he offers to us, we sometimes need to see Jesus working and speaking and acting in the lives of people around us. Now, one of the reasons why he gives this command is because we're very short-sighted. And Christ is so perfect that one person cannot manifest him properly. That's why we need multiple people. And that leads us to the third command in this passage, which is actually right at the beginning. It's when he says, Brothers, Join in imitating me. You see, following Christ is too hard on our own. And you, it doesn't happen by accident. It is intentional. And it's not a corporate affair. It's not an individual affair. It needs to be done with other people. You might have heard the phrase, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, it takes a church to live like Christ. Now, uh, for those of you here today who believe in Jesus, I need you to follow. I need you to help me follow Christ. When I'm not in line with God's word, I need you to tell me. And when you know that my eyes aren't fixed on other people who are following Christ better than me, you need to call me out. Now, the important thing with that is, is that we need to know who each other's heroes are in order to do that. Or if we even have heroes... We need to be involved in each other's lives enough to know that we're watching other people and following them faithfully. And this lifestyle of following other people who faithfully follow Christ is incredibly important. And, one of, and Paul gives us a, one of the reasons why that's important in the next verse. In verse 18, he says, For many of whom have often, I have often told you, and now even tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
Now, what he's telling them is there's a lot of people who not only do not follow Christ, but with their lives openly are in opposition to the message of the cross. Now, in order to understand who these enemies are that Paul is so worried about, we need to know what they're enemies of, which is the message of the cross. The message of the cross is that Christ chose to die on an instrument of torture and execution so that he could bear the punishment of the sins of the whole world. And once he died, he then rose again three, three days later so that by faith we could have life with him eternally. The message of the cross is twofold. First, that by having faith in what Jesus did on the cross, our sins can be forgiven. The second is that the life that is lived in faithful obedience, like Christ following his example, is a life that will be the most satisfying and ultimately lead to your glorification. Now, um, for, for, the, for the enemies that he's talking about here, this message is foolishness. And to most people here, to, here in, the, in the world, by their lifestyle and in their beliefs, it's still foolishness. It's offensive to a lot of people that their sin offends God. It's repulsive to them that they need a Savior to save them from themselves. And for a lot of people, it sounds stupid that someone can come back from the dead. It seems ridiculous that in order for us to be fully happy, we need to lay our lives down instead of pick it up. And these, pe- these people who are enemies of the cross, they're not just a few people. Paul says that they are many. And Paul is deeply worried about them. He has warned the Philippians about them many times, and it has drove him to tears. And it's because they're so numerous that they are so dangerous to the church. That message is still very clear today. We are surrounded by people who are enemies of the cross. And Paul gives the command to keep our eyes on people who follow Christ because he knows how seductive it can be when everyone around you is opposed to what you hold dear. He knows that when you are surrounded by people who hate what you love, it can often have an erosive effect on your convictions. It can, what it can do is draw you away from the things that you once loved. Now, his solution is for us to imitate those who follow Christ. We need to take our cues from those who love Christ, not those who don't. He knows that one of the best ways to keep away from following people away from Christ is to follow those who follow closely behind the cross. And what we need to do today is make sure we have our eyes fixed on those whose love for the Savior doesn't waver. Now, uh, in the next verse, he goes on to, co- to continue to describe these people. Um, he says in verse 19, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. First thing I, I want to point out there that, as a way that he describes these enemies of the cross is their bellies are their gods. Now, when you first read that, sounds like these people really like to eat, right? Yeah, like it, it makes me think of the phrase that, uh, you know, that they live to eat, not eat to live. But 
to the first century reader, the phrase, their God is their belly, probably would have had a, a more broader understanding. They would have understood it to mean that their desires and impulses are what rule them. Now, don't get me wrong. This text is definitely talking about eating. The Roman culture was notorious for gluttony. I mean, the, the rich, the rich Romans, despite the fact that there were so many poor people in Rome who didn't have any food, would have these huge feasts, and they would eat course after course after course. And when they started getting sick because they were so full, don't worry, they have this pot sitting right next to them that they can throw up in so that they can eat more food. Yeah, and it's, but it's not just food. These people were, were terrible hedonists. With sex, basically anything was okay. And it wasn't just with adults or consenting individuals. If you were a rich Roman, you got what you wanted. And if you wanted a little entertainment, you wanted some action, some violence, you just go to the amphitheater. And there you could watch slaves ripped apart by lions and tigers and other beasts. And uh, when it came to religion... There was a whole slew of gods and religions and cults. So whatever you wanted to worship, whatever uh, whatever way you wanted to worship, there there was a cult for you. And that is not much unlike us today. Right now, if you want a God that affirms what you think and the way you want to live your life, don't worry. There's a church down the street that's yours. For a lot of people back then, And today, truth serves desire. And Paul is saying that these people are slaves to their own depravity. And not only that, the next phrase says that they glory in their shame. They take pride in things they should be ashamed of, things that should make them cower in fear. In fact, they they had these gods that they not only worshipped, who were gods of trickery and betrayal, but they celebrated them. And they honored people for lavish displays of wealth at the expense of the poor. And it's not hard today for us to see ways where people take pride in things that they should be ashamed of. I'm sure you could probably think of the last time you heard someone brag about how they got wasted last night or how easy it is for them to to get in in another person's bed. In fact, our culture is so obsessed with taking pride in things we should be ashamed of, this entire month is dedicated to taking pride in something that is against the design of God. On a less obvious note, how often do we take pride in our ability to not control our emotions? If, you are, if you're facetious, if you are selfishly impulsive or easily angered, We just say we wear our hearts on our sleeves. We're passionate people who are led by our hearts. And so we allow ourselves to be excused for our actions. We start to take pride in our ability to lash out in our lack of self-control. And the the next thing that he says uh, is that their end is their destruction and they have their mind set on earthly things. They, they don't ever think about eternal things. They, they keep their minds on things of earth, things that will pass away like dust in the wind. And like the things that they've got their mindset on, 
they will go the way of the things that they love. Paul says that their end is destruction. The end of their impulses and desires is that they will endure a useless and never-ending suffering. But for Paul, for those who do not despise the cross, but instead embrace it and cling to it as their only hope in this life and in the next, he has these words in verses in verse 20. He says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to zero in on that phrase, you are, you are a citizen of heaven. That word citizenship in the Greek is polituma. And polituma, in this passage, is translated citizenship. But the only reason it's translated that way is because in our culture, we don't have a word that really maps out correctly. For the first century reader, a better, a better way to translate this is you are a colony of heaven. Now, most of you, when you think of a colony, you probably think of the original 13 colonies of America from, from Britain that eventually became the 13 states. Or you think of the, the Spanish colonies that were established as they conquered South and Central America and the Philippines. For us, we usually think of colonies where a nation has control of another nation, and we think of empires. But for the first century individual, it wasn't like that at all. Nations didn't have colonies of other nations. Cities had colonies of other cities. It'd be like if Philadelphia was a colony of Chicago, right? Because Chicago's better than Philadelphia. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but now... now uh, Philippi is a perfect example of this because Philippi uh, is a colony in, in, in the ancient world of Rome, the capital city of the Roman Empire. And whereas we view being a colony as, usually as oppressive or a bad thing, back then it was viewed as a really good thing. You see, um, although there was hundreds of cities within the Roman Empire, only a handful of cities got the right to be a colony, Rome. And because of that, Philippi would often get gifts sent to them from Rome. And they usually, whenever Rome didn't have to pay taxes, which they would do frequently to keep everybody happy, Philippi didn't have to pay taxes either. And if you think Cook County taxes are bad, you should have seen the Roman taxes. So this was a, a really great privilege, right? Now, um, what, one of the things that's important about that is although it came with a great privilege, it came with a great responsibility. To be a colony of Rome meant that you had the responsibility of, of spreading the Roman way of life to the rest of the region you were in. So instead of living like the Macedonians, like the rest of the people in the region, the city of Philippi lived like Romans. They took their cues from Rome and not from where they lived. Now, um, that meant that whatever fashion, art, furniture, architecture, or philosophy was popular in Rome, the Philippians imitated it. And, uh, and the city of Philippi, the people who were allowed to live there were a bunch of retired Roman soldiers and their families. So uh, these people had served Rome for the ho their whole lives. So if, if something were to happen... If someone were to threaten Rome or their influence in the region, 
you'd have this huge city that is full of Roman soldiers who are patriots for Rome, who could defend Rome at a moment's notice. And so the Philippians were Roman to the core and proud of it. And they had a lot of reason to be proud. You see, the Roman Empire was the greatest empire that anyone had seen up to that point. It stretched from one side of the Mediterranean to the other. And they had an emperor who they called Caesar. And to the Philippians in the city, Caesar was their great lord. They called him Lord and Savior of all mankind. It's a big statement, right? Well, it's also a big deal because Rome had this thing called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. The, the rulers of Rome established a peace in their empire for 200 years. No one else had ever seen that up to this point. We have a similar thing. It's called the Pax Americana, the peace of America. For over 200 years, we have stood strong through wars and battles. And we are a superpower. Our land stretches from sea to shining sea. We are the land of the free and the home of the brave. And we call our presidents the leaders of the free world. Sounds a lot like the Roman Empire, doesn't it? Now, um, that, that allows us to get ourselves in the shoes of the, of the Church of Philippi. You can understand why they're so proud of their nation. Now, um, Paul says to this church that loves their country so much and is used to taking their cues from Rome, and to us here today, this challenge, although you used to be loyal to Rome, and you used to be loyal to America, you are no longer citizens of those places. You are now part of the colony of heaven. When you decided to follow Jesus, your citizenship changed. And now, your passport doesn't say America. It now says city of heaven. So you can stop taking your cues from Rome. You can stop taking your cues from America, from Chicago, and in the cultures that you find yourselves in. You now take your cues from the king. And we await, we have our eyes fixed on heaven, not here on earth, because we await a Lord and a Savior that is ten times greater than Caesar. He is the real Savior of all mankind. And we have a commander-in-chief, our supreme president, Lord Jesus Christ, who not only does things like give us the right to vote, to bear arms, or to have freedom of speech, he has freed us from the power of sin and the devil. Yeah, get excited. He is our great king. And by faith, we enjoy his victory. And in Philippians, it says, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of, of God the Father. And where all other empires and nations dominate by bloodshed and violence and war, Christ won, it, won his victory by laying his own life down on the cross. And although the church and the people who follow Christ have not always followed and built his kingdom faithfully. Christ's kingdom grows not through violence and bloodshed and conquest, but through loving self-sacrifice, mercy, and forgiveness. We live in a kingdom that cares for the poor, 
the lowly, and the outcast. It doesn't separate families at the border. And we have a God and a king who offers healing to criminals and forgiveness to its enemies. And the Pax Christi, the peace of Christ, unlike all other kingdoms in all history, will go on forever without end. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. It is not bad to love your country, okay? In a lot of places in Scripture, it's encouraged. And in fact, in a lot of places, culture is celebrated. And we're even commanded to work for the good of our city. But I have to be honest with you, and I do not mean to step on toes, but an America first mentality is not biblical. You have one kingdom that you are loyal to, and it is the kingdom of God. When you become a Christian, if you are, if you love Jesus here today, your citizenship is changed. And you follow the king, not whatever culture you live in. So now you take your cues from Christ and not from where you're, fr- where you're at. Now, when it comes, so a week from now, a week and a half from now, we're going to be celebrating the 4th of July. So I don't want any of this to keep you from celebrating. Celebrate, enjoy that time, praise God for our country. We have a great country and a great city. And when those fireworks are going off, enjoy it. And please, ask God, God bless America. But then let your next phrase be, and may your kingdom conquer this land and all to come. And as we await this king, he's, when we say we're awaiting him, he's coming back. He's, gonna, he's going to set foot on the earth again and reign here on earth. And when that happens, Paul describes what's that's going to happen in the next verse. In verse 21, he says, Who, meaning Christ, will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So earlier on in this book, in Philippians chapter 2, what we read is that uh, Christ took on humility. He took on our our, our human bodies, our lowly bodies, and then lived a perfect life on our behalf, died on the cross, bearing the penalty for our sins so that we could be forgiven. And then he rose from the dead, but not with the old body. He's got a new body. It's still a human body, still human, but it is so much better. It never ages. It will never die. It will never get sick. It is a body built for eternity. And not only did he get this new body, by his death and resurrection, he gained the right to then take our bodies, our lowly bodies that he took on, and then transform it to be like his new body. That is really great news. See, Christ is not just interested in saving your soul. And if that's what you think, you have too low a view of salvation. He's interested in your body, too. Christ is the Lord of the soul and the body. And we eagerly await that. When he comes back and we get our new bodies, if you believe in Jesus, fibromyalgia is gone. Mental disease is healed. Things that aren't curable will disappear. 
depression and mental health will be healed. And then the blind will see, the lame will walk. And these glasses that I wear so that I can see the words on the screen, I won't need it anymore. I will have new eyes to see the magnificence of Jesus. And guess what, guys? It gets a lot better than that. He's not interested in just saving your soul or just saving your body. He is going to save all of creation. See, when he died and rose again, he not only will put all kings and rulers under his feet, he now has the power over all creation. So that every aspect of creation, every piece of earth and part of space will be under his control. And so when he comes back, this earth that is so corrupted by sin that it needs natural disasters in order for our ecosystems to survive, devastation so life can occur, he's going to tame it. No more hurricanes, no more tsunamis, no more tornadoes that take life. Christ will restore the earth. Earth and all her children will finally be healed under the loving, peaceful reign of Christ. And that city that we're a part of in heaven, when Jesus comes back, doesn't stay up there. Because heaven is not heaven without her king. Heaven comes down to earth. And when that happens, God dwells with man. And this earthly place that you're not supposed to keep your mind on, will then become heavenly, and the heavenly will become earthly, and peace will be restored to all of creation. And I hope as we say these things, that this fills your heart with pride. Because when, as a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, when you hear the goodness of the kingdom that you're a part of, and the greatness of the king that you serve, it should fill yourself with patriotic pride. Not a pride... That, that, is, that is proud because you're so special that you're part of the kingdom of God. You're, you're only part of the kingdom of God by grace and grace alone. But a pride that when you hear your Savior and the name of Jesus Christ lifted high, you are overjoyed. So as we worship God and we lift up his name, let your heart be filled with patriotic joy about the colony that you're a part of now. Now, um, it's not only supposed to be a source of pride for you and a source of rejoicing. Being part of a colony of heaven means that you also have a mission. As a colony of heaven, your job is now, instead of taking your cues from the culture you're a part of, you now make the culture you're a part of look like heaven. Your job is now to not let the world influence the values that influence you with the values that they have. You're supposed to show them how good the way of Christ is. And some of us have gotten really lazy and have allowed ourselves to go on autopilot mode. You like that autopilot mode where you let everyone else determine the way that you live your life and the morals that you value. Maybe it means that you spend most of your days at school focused on how to fit in. Or you're at work and you fudge numbers because everyone else does it. 
or you allow yourself to partake in gossip because you don't want the gossip to turn back on you. Let's end the cycle, family. We have a great calling, a magnificent calling, a calling to, to, to view the greatness of Christ, his magnificence, and then to manifest that magnificent to the, magnificence to the world around us through loving action and from telling people about the good news and the message of the cross. And you know what's great? We don't have to do that alone. We get to do it together. You see, this church here is a colony of heaven in Chicago. This is our town hall. And baptism is our pledge of allegiance. When we sing our worship songs, Lion and the Lamb and 10,000 Reasons, that's our national anthem. So let's enjoy this. Let's enjoy turning this city into heaven. Now, we're going to do that by the power of the Spirit. So, Spirit, please come. <laughs> we can't do that on our own. Um, so that, that brings us to our, our last verse, which is verse number, number one in chapter four. And that's his last command to the church of Philippi here. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. To the brothers and sisters in Philippi, he says, stand firm. To the brook here right now, he says, stand firm. Like soldiers standing next to one another with eyes facing forward, ready to take down any enemy coming their way, he says, stand firm. And we stand firm by taking our cues from where we're from, not where we find ourselves. And one of the best ways for us to do that is to keep our eyes fixed on those who follow Christ better than us, those who are patriots of heaven. So if you're sitting here today and you're thinking to yourself, Josh, I really love what you're saying about living like a citizen of heaven, but I honestly don't know what it means to, sh- to manifest the kingdom of God where I'm at. That's a really good place to be at. So thank you for your honesty because, because you need that. What I would encourage you is that look around for people in this church who are patriots of heaven. People who can mentor you and guide you in the Christian life. Because there is a number of them. And I would encourage you to specifically ask them and ask them and invite them to walk alongside you in that. Because they will, and it will transform it for you so that you don't have to wonder about You you don't have to wonder about how you can take your cues from heaven. And for those of you here today who have heard the word, and by grace, by the Spirit's conviction, have felt like the word has cut to your heart because of ways that you have allowed the culture to determine your values, and you've taken your cues from the world, praise God. And I would say confess your sin now. Repent and ask God to forgive you, and Jesus Christ will. And he will renew your strength, take up your Bible again, whether it's for the first time or the thousandth, and and read it to, to see how you can follow Christ more faithfully where you're at. And for those of you here today who are not followers of Jesus Christ, you've never committed your life to following the Lord Jesus, what's holding you back? 
I mean, if it's because you don't want to let go of, of the things that taking your cues from the world has given you, maybe things that you've enjoyed, I want to promise you that the pleasures that, are, that come and the satisfaction that come through faith in Jesus Christ in this life and the next are so much greater than any bland pleasure you've enjoyed here. And if it's because you feel like you are unforgivable because of the ways you've resisted the rule of God in your life, I would invite you and I would strongly encourage you to change that because that, you, you've missed the point. The point of the gospel, the good news of the message of the cross, is that God loves you and you can't do it on your own. He died on the cross for you, bore the penalty of your sins for you. So that by faith, you can have your sins forgiven and have a relationship with God. And he rose again from the dead, defeating death and all your enemies so that you can have eternal life with him if you submit to his peaceful and loving lordship. I'm going to close this in prayer and I'm going to invite the worship team and the prayer team to come up. If any of this has touched your heart, whether you want to commit your life to following Christ, or if, or if this is, is drawing you to, to a deeper faithfulness to his kingship, I would invite you to, to pray with some of the prayer leaders up here. Father, I thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you didn't leave us in our, in our tepid, weak kingdoms. You have invited us into the colony of heaven. And you have made us citizenships of something greater than ourselves. I pray that you would help us to, to know you more, and I pray that you would fill us with a, a patriotic passion for you, for you and for your kingdom. And as we worship, I pray that we would get a new vision of you, and as we go throughout our day, that we would, that we would follow others as they follow Christ. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.